Well, hello and welcome. This is A Reason for Hope, and we are with you live for the next hour to receive your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right. If you have questions about the Bible, maybe verses or passages in Scripture that uh, you'd like to delve more into, maybe world events from a biblical perspective, perhaps uh, events in your own life that uh, you're wanting to honor the Lord but don't quite know how to do that. Really, any question you have, as long as you know that we're going to find the answer and endeavor to find the answer in God's Word, the Bible. That's what we're all about here at A Reason for Hope. My name is Dave Robson. I'll be your host today and fielding those questions as they come on in. And with me today is Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing? The beard's growing. Stubble's getting longer. Yep. No Shave November continues. And I've recently lost confidence in belts. Why is that? Well, when you consider the role that a belt plays on your pants, it's not actually the belt that holds your pants up unless those little rings are connecting it to your pants. So who's the real hero here? This is very true. Maybe you have questions on that, belts and other uh, clothing accessories. Really, we're open to any question, apparently. But let me <laughs> allow me to let you know how you can be part of our broadcast today. A Reason for Hope is a ministry of uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We have a website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the Watch Live tab there, and uh, you will find us live. There's a chat function there that you can send your question in. Also on Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And we have an app as well you can download on your mobile device, whether that's your phone or iPad, such uh, such and, and the like. Uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship uh, as well. Also on Roku and Apple TV, you can watch us on the big screen. We have an email address, of course, questionsforhope at gmail.com, questionsforhope, all spelled out at gmail.com, where you can send us your questions. If you're listening to us on the radio, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded, so you'll want to send your questions uh, to that email address, and we will endeavor to get to those on our next show. Uh, our senior pastor here, Scott Richards, uh, who we're hoping to be joining us at some point in the show today, making an Elvis entrance uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Scott Arthur H. That's Scott, letter R, number four, letter H. And he posts, uh, what was the word? Snarky snippets. Mm -hmm. Snarky snippets and uh, highlights from the show and commentary on world events. And we'll have uh, hopefully an update on some of the goings on in is Israel. Yeah, the Israeli elections are wrapping up. We'll get an update on that as well. Very exciting. When he gets here, uh, we'll jump into that as well. So those are the ways you can join us. Again, this show is led by your questions, so please do send your questions in. There's no dumb question, as long as it's an honest and sincere question. And like I say, you know that we're going to delve into the Bible to find those answers. So we thank you for being part of this broadcast. Sean, would you like to pray as we delve on in? be an honor. Be Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word, see that my Father is here safely, and that your Spirit is also speaking readily through us. Equip Dave and I to not only be able to field your questions properly, but to answer them according to your heart, your mind, and your spirit. And we ask that this would be all done for your glory. In Jesus' name, mm. amen. 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 Well, while we're getting online here and waiting for your questions to come in, we have a question on a good old-fashioned card here that probably someone here at Calvary Christian Fellowship popped in the box for us. Probably. Uh, from uh, Daniel. This one has a name to it. That's always exciting. God is judge. <laughs> that's, that's right. Great name. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, why is it that the brothers of Christ, of, of Jesus, had some issues believing that he was the Messiah? Well, I guess to start off in a lighthearted note, wouldn't you? 
We're going to be talking about sibling rivalries and the dynamics of growing up and living under the same roof as somebody that you don't have any other association with than (laughs) obligation. Obviously, if you had an older brother who is claiming to be God, you would have some uh, words for him. But uh, let's just first take this from an entirely biblical perspective. Uh, First of all, it is accurate for those of you listening that Jesus's biological brothers, as far as their relationship between Mary and Joseph are concerned, they had at least five children. We're told the names of three of his brothers. That was James, Joseph, and Judas. Or you, you get, he's also known as Jude, but um, and also his sisters. So that's at least two. Mm-hmm. Noting five children, not uncommon among first-century Jewish families and modern-day ones as well. We need to first understand that when Mary and Joseph went on to have this family, Jesus was in fact the quote-unquote firstborn as far as chronal. Uh, chronology is concerned, but also noting for the first, to anyone's guess, maybe 30 years of his life is the usual estimate, uh, was just helping dad around the house. We have, of course, false gospels that were written uh, talking about him uh, bringing clay birds to life or transforming kids into goats for his entertainment or striking people dead because they uh, corrected him on something in school. None of these, of course, come from eyewitness sources, none of which line up with anything we would know about the Messiah in Scripture. And it didn't, of course, come from anything that we would consider authoritative either. So it's obviously fiction. But when we're talking about what we do know about Jesus, all we know from his childhood, at least, is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, when he was bar mitzvahed, he hung around in the temple for longer than his parents anticipated, and uh, they they got quite upset with him, which I'm sure every parent has experienced at one time or Mm -hmm. another, losing track of your kids, except for them it was two days. So the point being made is this. When they had a family dynamic going, there was an expectation and a perception of who Jesus was in the eyes of all of his family members, even Mary, who at the time of his birth and the circumstances surrounding that, kept these things in her heart. But ultimately, when it came to Jesus' verification of his deity, it took the resurrection even to convince her. But with that being said, James, Judas, Joseph, and his sisters, there's passages in the Gospels of Matthew and of Luke where they note he wasn't only not the Messiah in their eyes, he was literally, according to the text, beside himself. Mm-hmm. Literally like that image in Lord of the Rings where Gollum's talking out of both sides of his faces and mm-hmm. they try to give that perception of him talking in a mirror with a more sinister snarl. That was the idea, is that Jesus had completely flipped. They had this perception of who big brother Joshua, that's what Jesus' name in English would have been, was, and then suddenly he starts claiming he's the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Suddenly he starts claiming that he is here to fulfill all the promises made by Daniel and by Isaiah and the prophets. And this obviously blindsided them when they were wondering, and quite sarcastically, I might add, in the Gospel of John, why he didn't seek to make himself known among the people. He was following a timetable that didn't even fit into their cultural expectations. Oh, you think you're going to be the Messiah? Why don't you go out conquering, old Josh, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we need to understand that. When Jesus started performing these miracles, it was during the time and after when he was baptized by John the Baptist. Then suddenly, 
we see him fulfilling the purposes of the Messiah. So what was he doing in the meantime? Well, we're told in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2 that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in the fear of God and men. Didn't mean that he had to develop morally, but it did mean he developed physically and mentally like any other human being. Mm. When the Holy Spirit came upon him, as we saw in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1 as a dove, that's when people were asking, isn't this Joseph's son? Where did this man get all this knowledge from? We note this switch. And you have to imagine that was very radical transition, not just for his parents, but for his siblings, because I'm sure, Dave, is you having more siblings than I. When you see a radical change that big, let alone any, in the life of your sibling, you already bring up to people, hey, this isn't the guy that you see at home. Mm -hmm. This isn't the guy that I grew up with. What's going on here? They were the first ones to undercut him. And yet, when Jesus rose from the dead, I mean, Gary Hammerboss makes this observation, I'll repeat it, but how would you have liked to have been a fly on the wall when we see in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, when the apostle James saw his brother, his little, his older brother Jesus, risen from the dead after his publicly verified execution and burial. And, right. you know, he just comes up to him, he's like, hey, bro, check it out. Yeah. <laughs> There's the scars. It took that to yeah. convince them. It took that to convince his apostles. It would take that to convince anyone. And it adds only another layer of validity to Jesus' case because when he is talking about his claims to be Messiah, it wasn't because he was brought up with that mindset. Like, okay, Josh, you're the descendant of David, right? You're going to be the Messiah. Otherwise, James would have had that expectation and Joseph and Judas and the others People in Bethlehem weren't showcasing that. In fact, the reason why the Nazarenes tried to move themselves to Bethlehem was because they were considered failures. They were supposed to be of the Messianic line, the royal line. It got this Edomite Herod who's on the throne. What gives? They wanted to be left alone. Yet Jesus, fulfilling prophecy after prophecy, was drawing all this attention to himself, and his brothers didn't know what to do with it. So noting that shock that came to them, we know this wasn't something that was staged. We know from the accounts of historical criticism and embarrassment that this wasn't something that they instituted into him. It was something that all of a sudden he started showcasing, Mm. and it was only through not just his words but his deeds Mm. that the people who would have had nothing to do with them, and by the way, the Apostle James's conversion on par with the Apostle Paul's conversion to Christianity as far as a historical witness of Jesus' death and resurrection. When you're, you're not only your political enemy for the Apostle Paul, who was formerly known as Saul the Pharisee, that's one thing. But for your younger brother to admit that he's God, mm-hmm. any historian who has had a sibling is going to look at that and go, he probably saw something. Mm-hmm. And this is the whole point. So why did they have trouble believing him? Because firstly, they had spent the majority of his young adulthood and adolescence with a perception of their brother that borderline changed overnight. Mm -hmm. We know that Jesus was perfect in his character, and there's plenty of comedian who point that out. How would you like to have Jesus as your older brother? Mm -hmm. Always that expectation, you know, why can't you be more like Jesus, James, you know? (laughs) But the point of emphasis is just that. God knows what he needed to prove, what would be necessary for us to understand. I'm not only real, but I proved it in a moment of history. And he started with the most difficult audience it would take to convince anyone of anything spiritual, and that was his own family. Jesus himself said that a prophet is not without honor except in his own household, right. making the sarcastic observation not even there. See the prophet Jeremiah. 
But the point being made is just that, uh, Daniel, to the question of why they had so much trouble believing him. Because first, they had cultural assumptions. First, they, second, they had personal, familial assumptions about him. And, of course, when they were doing all of these things, the hostility that they brought to him was something that God could use in order to verify historically the reality of his resurrection. Even in our fallenness, God's glorified. But note those things is the reason why. They were doing what siblings do. And they see their brother doing something that they either find odd or find a uh, opposition to the way they would like their family to be perceived. They're going to oppose it. And they did. Boy, did they. But when it comes to the after effects of the resurrection, it only added further to the case. I believe God was sovereign in using their fallenness in, of all the siblings. I do recognize that until this point, they had no reason to believe he was the Messiah, apart from just being a really good follower of Torah. <laughs> and of course, the ongoing reality of that fact that when these prophecies were fulfilled, when these obstacles were put in front of Jesus, that it was ultimately his father's will that was being fulfilled, and that put him at conflict with his family, who were just as much fallen sinful human beings as we are. But God used it, and it continues to bear witness to his resurrection and its historical validity to this day. Yeah. And I I guess that's encouraging for, you know, those who have come to the Lord maybe later in life or any time in life, and... um you know, maybe against their family's beliefs or against, you know, people around them's beliefs that, you know, there's going to be that kind of uh, questioning of it. And I guess if it's, you know, good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. Do you, know, you know what I mean? Like to uh, to know that that kind of persecution, I guess I use that word lightly, but can come if there's a radical change, you know. I mean, I think about my brother, not necessarily belief-wise, but he's an osteopath, like a, which is kind of like a chiropractor, you know, adjustments. And I grew up with him and, you know, noogies and whatever and that kind of stuff. And um, and then one day he's like cracking my neck and, and my spine, you know, and it took a, quite something to, you know, to trust that he was going to do that and take care of me because, like you said, he was my brother and I grew up with him as a kid. But You got these impressions of him, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So I guess if it was good enough for Jesus to, to have that experience, then good enough for us. Well, Daniel, thank you for that question and I hope that helped you out. And uh Lo and behold. Yes. <laughs> Pastor Scott, you are here. Thank it's like for, a reverse rapture. Thank you for joining. Yeah, that's right. You came back with a message. By the way, you can bear testimony to this. I called it. I knew you'd be here around quarter to after. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. there you go. You're Play, just place few, your bets. You're just a few seconds off. Very yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, for those, uh, I don't know how many, much of the detail you got into, but I had a blowout on the freeway today and had oh, to uh, get the... Uh, the tire changed and, and all this stuff. I recreated that famous scene from A Christmas Story where the old man changes the tire by the side of the road, uh, hopefully without any uh, uh, linguistic embellishments. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I ended up doing that, got it to the tire store, had to pick it up before they closed. I'm back. You're here, yeah. <laughs> what, is, what is it with you and, and vehicles getting here to the show? There's, uh, I'm starting to think you're making it up. If, it's, if this happens again, like, well, this time... My steering wheel fell off, and that. <laughs> yes, usually I'm, I'm very prompt about that. Sort of <laughs> yeah, but it's good to be here. Yes, we have to maybe get you a driver or yeah. take the bus or something like that. Yeah, well, we were just uh, Daniel had a question about um, yeah why uh, uh, why Jesus' brothers didn't accept him, and Sean did a wonderful job of answering that. Yeah, I listened on question. the way in. Oh, did you? Oh, great. <laughs> well, I was no, stuck in no heresy checks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very so good. Far, so we can, so good. We can move on to uh, to the next question. Um, 
We got a question from Mac as well. And oh, um, good. Do we have uh, any updates as far as current events in Israel? Well, uh, as we've been sharing with you this week, it's the after uh, effects of uh, the Israeli election. Uh, just so that you guys can continue to to pray and to uh, lift up Israel during this transition time. It uh, the final votes are in, and it does appear uh, from uh, all reports that Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, coalition is probably going to uh, uh, come together fairly quickly. Uh, probably up to 65 seats in the Knesset will be part of this coalition, maybe even more, uh, who knows. Uh, but uh, what happens now is that uh, within four days, a uh, meeting is uh, made uh, with uh, President Herzog, uh, Yitzhak Herzog, uh, the president of Israel is more a ceremonial post than anything else, but he has the uh, wherewithal to be able to uh, ask uh, the largest uh, uh, coalition party block in the Knesset if they can get together with other uh, party blocks and form a government. Well, since Benjamin Netanyahu is the head of the Likud party, which is the largest party block in Israel, uh, this will fall to him. It does appear uh, that he will have very little problem putting together a coalition as two of the uh, more right-leaning religious parties uh, have already expressed uh, their desire to align with him. Where this gets tricky, though, is that uh, it's the old you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours process that goes on. Cabinet posts are assigned uh, basically uh, in exchange for support from these very various party groups. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we mentioned before, there's some uh, very uh, interesting and colorful individuals that are heading up these uh, religious, right-leaning religious uh, blocks uh, with some uh, pretty uh, radical things they have said down through time. Essentially, uh, the, uh, the view on, on the ground there is that you can say kind of throw out your red meat uh, to your your followers as uh, politicians do, but then when you have to govern, uh, the views tend to moderate. Some of these uh, religious parties have, for instance, suggested that the status quo agreement regarding the uh, oversight of the Temple Mount uh, that had been given to Jordan as a result of um, uh, peace negotiations they had after the 67 war uh, be set aside and, and Israel uh, be given the, the right to oversee the Temple Mount area. Don't think that's really uh, going to uh, happen because that would create a huge dust up in the Middle East. We've never seen, for instance, Benjamin Netanyahu suggest that is something on his agenda. So uh, that's probably something that's going to, uh, to be set aside and put away. Interestingly, and this is the, the only other um, uh, prophetically significant uh, detail in all of this is that both of these religious blocks that make up really the cornerstone of a new Netanyahu government have both uh, made very strong statements uh, about uh, the idea of an enforced Sabbath uh, being brought to the forefront of, of Jewish governance. Now, mm -hmm. why is that uh, prophetically significant? Well, it's very interesting how Jesus talking about the last days and the end times when the abomination that causes desolation, that is the Antichrist going into a rebuilt temple mm -hmm. to proclaim himself to be God. Jesus says, said, pray that your flight not be in winter 
or on the Sabbath. Now, with the secularized trends in Israel, when we were there in Israel, um, you know, Shabbat was respected, but uh, businesses were open. Uh, one of the uh, only problems with Shabbat that we ran into was at our, uh, our hotel, uh, a number of the uh, Orthodox Jews who stay uh, in these places uh, through Shabbat uh, were really dragging their feet about getting out of their hotel rooms, and they're mm. kind of notorious for that sort of thing. But uh, if these strict measures regarding Shabbat, that is uh, the implementation of the observance of the Sabbath in Israel from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday are going on, uh, it would be very interesting because that would shut down all transportation mm -hmm. in Jerusalem, which may be something that Jesus is alluding to there. So something to keep an eye on for sure. Uh, they say that uh, a fully functioning government in Israel will probably not uh, be uh, fully in place and hitting the ground running any sooner than uh, around the 1st of December. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the negotiations going on with all of this. The other interesting detail in the articles that I read was uh, both of these uh, religious parties go, oh, it's a religious party. That's a good thing. Well, not necessarily because both of them are very anti messianic jew and and by messianic what we mean is jews that accept jesus as the messiah they want them stripped of their rights and uh and essentially uh in some uh statements they may be deported mm -hmm. for their faith in jesus so it's going to be very interesting that it uh takes a very seasoned politician like uh, benjamin netanyahu to make everybody get along and play nice mm. um i think with the amount of knesset seats that he has uh, he will definitely be able uh, to uh, to bring a stability that we haven't seen in Israel for quite some time. And uh, as if to uh, ratify uh, the uh, new Netanyahu government uh, coming in, uh, our friends in uh, the Gaza Strip uh, celebrated by lobbing some missiles at Israel. One that got over the border of uh, Gaza into Israel was taken out by the Iron Dome defense. The other three that were launched uh, blew up uh, shortly after launch and landed in Palestinian territory. So, uh, but it was sort of a uh, little saber rattling going on there. Yeah, great. Thank you for that yeah. update. Yeah, man, keep praying. Yeah, keep praying for peace. Uh, we have a question came in from from Mac D. Mac, thank you for for joining us and thank you for the honesty of your question as well. Um, he says, after two months of doing good, I have fell back into my old desires. Why can't I just be free from the things I hate, uh, but I just tend to give in anyway? Paul had the same question at the end of Romans chapter right. 7. Three yeah. passages. Again, Mac, you're going to find that the more you grow in your relationship with God, you won't cease from sin. You'll be more sensitive to it. You'll realize you're sinning in more ways than you once realized. And the funny thing, too, is the mark of maturity is not in how much less you sin. It's how long it takes between the sins that even you weren't aware of earlier in your Christian walk and you seeking restoration and receiving it. And here's what I mean. Three passages, again, to keep in mind, and you can note these all down. The book of Romans, chapter 7, verses 13 to the end of the chapter are obviously going to be key. The second is in 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. And the third is in 1 John, chapter 1, and verse 8, all the way to chapter 2, 
and verse 1. That's Romans chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and 1 John chapter 1. Uh, when we're starting in Romans chapter 7, obviously you borderline quoted the end of the sentiment, which was what Paul was getting at, but make sure you finish his sentence. He says in verse 23, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. Mm-hmm. He's explained in the chapter that is to do the things that are right with God and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Notice, not that was until I got saved, which is in my members. Right. Yeah. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. First thing you need to understand, Mac, is the Christian life isn't achieving holiness, it's receiving mercy. And in my experience, and at least in the lingo that I discuss with my purity group, there's two ways that we relate to God in our struggle. It is either manifesting his mercy or manifesting his power. We're in one of those two categories 24-7, because apart from God's power, his direct intervention in our life, we would fall to our flesh in ways that would even make us sick. But the good news is, because the Holy Spirit is growing in influence in our lives, we also can be demonstrations of his power. In some ways, it's through the taking away of those sins. In other ways, it is the ability to say yes to him instead of the things that we would have defaulted to without a second thought beforehand. Something has tangibly visibly and personally changed in our lives. But there is a sense of a struggle there. Now we wonder, well, if God's really a part of it, shouldn't it all just go away? Well, that's why I encourage you to read, again, Paul's whole sentiment in the book of Romans. But I, for the sake of time, will read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul, noting a perspective he received on life and the allowance of things that definitely weren't reflective of his heavenly state before God. It was a physical infirmity in this case, but note for any struggle and wanting it to be taken away. That's the key relationship with you and Paul in this situation. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7 reads, Lest I should be exalted above measure, and by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Note Paul's conclusion then. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's first important to note the context of this isn't to say, well, I fell into sin, and since I know Jesus loves me, therefore, that means that I'm still happy all the day. There should be some grieving over that. But when it comes to a desire for something to be taken away from us, is God's grace enough? That's the question that we always need to ask. Is the mercy that you've received on the cross enough? And from that perspective, is this something that we can readily remind ourselves for so we not only fight harder but respond better and better over time? That we default to the fact that, look, there's a reason why we've been called to live beyond the things that this world literally thrives off of. 
whether it's in issues of lust, whether it's in the issues of drug or substance abuse, whether it's in the issues of even uh, poor self-control and losing our temper, anything that isn't Christ-like in us, that is an opportunity for mercy to be shown and to be received. Because no, whether we think so or not, God has forgiven us on terms of the cross. Anyone who receives that has benefited from it. Right. But our emotions don't always track with that. No. And that's why First John chapter 1 and verse 8 is so key. I don't even have to turn to it because I've had to tell it to myself so often. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we confess, literally, to say the same thing about our sins, he is faithful, meaning he can always be trusted to do it, and just, meaning he's fair in doing so, to cleanse us from all our sins, or to cleanse us from our sins and uh, our unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, the note, we make him a liar. Notice the repetition and point there. Then the second chapter begins with this point. I've written these things to you, brethren, that you may not sin. Hmm. Let's be honest. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who cleanses us from all sin. Notice that ongoing process. Maybe you can get a bit into the Greek for us. But the point being made, Mac, is this. When you have an expectation of yourselves and disappoint yourselves, that's always going to lead to emotional distress. If, on the other hand, you have an expectation of God, and that expectation is informed by his word, you'll never be disappointed in anyone, or at least anyone that you should be. And here's the point. We always should be sinning less. We should always desire to grow closer in our fellowship with Jesus, and also by nature, want to distance ourselves from the things that he literally had to die to sever us from their ultimate consequences. So here's the point. In my mindset, and this is just practically in my own life, I've had to, and this isn't boasting in any way, make sacrifices in accommodation with my own weakness, knowing just how sinful I am in certain areas and how in other areas God has showed great mercy towards me. Uh, and when I was in the single digits, you know, I was a borderline kleptomaniac in training. But when I gave my life to the Lord, suddenly that desire <laughs> yeah. to just take things because they existed went away. Violent tendencies and anger are still struggles from time to time, but God's shown me a lot of mercy and self-control, and people here can attest to that. There have been some changes in my heart since I started taking a walk with God seriously. But lust of the eyes, still an ongoing problem. Still something that I have to seek regular accountability for that I have to put filters on my computer and my phone for, and still something that I struggle with incredibly to this day. So what do I do? Do I say, God has forsaken me because this one area of sin continues to have influence in my life? You said you did two months of doing good and then fell back into it. One day of doing good is something to be thankful for, because yeah. apart from the grace mm -hmm. of God, we would be doing a lot worse. Mm -hmm. And here's the point. When your default nature is, why did I fail? Fall back instead on how has God succeeded? Take track of those things and reflect the attitude of thankfulness because in 1 Thessalonians 4, yes, God's will is for us to abstain from sexual immorality. That's spelled out for us. But the next chapter also includes another thing that's God's will for our lives ongoing. That is to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything, even restoration, give thanks. Make sure that your focus is on the grace that God has shown you, not in the grace that he's continuing to show towards you, but you're seeing manifested isn't 
completely there yet. Understand that. Our struggle with sin needs to be a struggle. But the fact that you're struggling, the fact that you care, is very different Mm -hmm. from someone who wouldn't have the Holy Spirit. Don't let this invalidate your salvation. It hasn't. Don't let this think that there's some distance between you and Jesus. He knew what he was getting in for when he went on the cross. But also don't forget to recognize God has done and is still doing a work in your life. And if you fall, get back up. That's the mark of maturity, how long that takes. If it does take some time, or you're keeping track, rather, of days that you haven't sinned, rather than the opportunity today to pursue Jesus, another area to grow. But make that your focus. And again, read through Romans 7, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, and 1 John chapter 1, and into chapter 2. Those are my go-to verses. Uh, I know you guys aren't sinners, though, so you don't have any experience in this, but any maybe comments on what was said? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think that covered it well. I just, it always puts me in a, the, the mind of what Paul said in Philippians 3, where he says, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press for the goal, the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And it's interesting. He says, therefore, let as many of us as are mature have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree we have already attained, so let us walk by that same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Uh, you know what Paul's saying? I haven't arrived. Uh, you know, it's like the best definition of education is a healthy understanding of how much you don't know. Right. Uh, and in the same way, a healthy definition of Christian maturity is understanding how much you need to grow. And uh, like you mentioned, Sean, I think this is a really important point. The more mature you get in Christ, the more you understand him and what real holiness is all about, the more you start to see, you know, I got a long ways to go. I I remember uh, about six months after I became a Christian, you know, my language cleaned up, I wasn't drinking, you know, all these, you know, pretty radical things that happened in my life. And I thought to myself one day, wow, if this keeps up, I'm going to be just like Jesus in about six months or so, you know? So, uh, you know, I didn't realize that the Lord was kind of just dealing with some of the major stuff, but then he starts getting down to the roots. And I think it's the root work that is the most challenging. So, um, you know, the fact that A, you do have a track record, Mac, of seeing God do awesome stuff in your life and, uh, and B, uh, the fact that when you've stumbled and, and, and again, fallen back a bit, you're grieved over that, tells me the Holy Spirit's working in your heart. So uh, don't, don't minimize that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a huge thing is that you're not alone, you know, not only with us brothers here, but these biblical characters such as Paul, who was said he was the chiefest of, of sinners. So I think that's a ploy of the enemy. I know in my life has been the enemy to say, you're alone. You're the only one that struggles like this. There must be something yeah. wrong with your relationship with God. Yeah. Da 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 da. Yeah. yeah. And that's where confession is beautiful because you know you can say, "Hey, me too. You're not alone." And and Paul too, and these 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 people. So I hope you encourage Mac in that. Um, question from Mike: uh, Is some deliverance ministry real or all fake? Also, how do you tell? between real and fake. So deliverance ministry being... Well, let's let's define our terms, yeah. Yeah, okay, first great. of all. Uh, a, is it possible for believers in Christ to cast out demons? Mm. Yes, it is. 
that was one of the things that Jesus told us would be characteristic of those who would follow him. These signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. Uh, when Jesus sent out his disciples, they were shocked to find that even the demons were subject uh, in his name. And he said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject in your name. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I really believe, you know, a good uh, Christian buddy of mine, uh, Odin Fong from Calvary uh, uh, Chapel, Costa Mesa, uh, you know, put it this way, any competent uh, believer in Christ can deal with a demonic if it comes up. Uh, we have that authority in Christ. Mm. Uh, they don't find us the least bit intimidating, but uh, according to James, uh, the demons believe in God and tremble. Mm. The name of Jesus absolutely terrifies them because they understand his power. They understand that he is going to be their judge someday, and they understand the clock's ticking. Their, their days are numbered. Mm. So, you know, we don't uh, have to be intimidated by them. We don't have to feel like, you know, the darkness is going to get over us unless we follow, you know, 12 steps to deliverance and so on. Uh, that, uh, you know, Satan's going to be able to use this as his plaything. Yeah. You know, some really important, uh, fundamental scriptural truths we have to have in mind to evaluate anything that purports to be a deliverance ministry. First of all, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 tells us this, You are of God, little children, and you've overcome them, for greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Mm. Now, it doesn't say greater is he that is in you, than he that is also in you, mm -hmm. like Jesus and Satan are roommates in your heart or something like mm -hmm. that, and you know they, they, they squabble over who left the, uh, the dirty dishes in the sink. Uh, no, you know, the, the Lord indwells us, according to Romans chapter 8. If the Spirit of God is not dwelling in you, you're not born again. But the, the moment we are born again, the Spirit of God dwells in us, the Holy Spirit. And because of that, a Christian cannot be possessed. Now, some will try to do a song and dance by saying, well, you know, the word isn't necessarily possessed, but, you know, in Greek it means demonized. And, and so they will say that, uh, you know, if we're not careful, uh, we can give ourselves over to satanic strongholds, as they describe them, and uh, that uh, these, uh, these footholds that Satan gets within our lives, these areas in our lives that he grasps onto mm -hmm. are areas that, you know, you need to come to our meeting and, uh, you know, you need to acknowledge the satanic presence. Uh, there've been best-selling books written about, uh, going through 12 steps to deliverance from demonic oppression. They'll say, well, you're not possessed. You're just oppressed. But when you push them on it, uh, what they're saying is, is that Satan has such a stronghold in your life that you're not doing things uh, that are your decision, mm. that Satan is the one that is doing these things in you, and, and that if you can cast out these demons, go through these deliverance ministries, so to speak, you know, um, throw up little green phlegmy things and say, oh, it's the demon that, that was cast out. I mean, that's what they do at these, these gatherings. Then you're going to find true deliverance from habitual sin. Well, there's some real problems with this. First of all, in 1 John chapter 5, we are told in verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin in the habitual sense, but he who has been born of God keeps him and the wicked one does not touch him. The idea of touching there is the idea of grasping on. So we belong to the Lord. 
we're his property. He indwells us. The, the wicked one does not grasp onto us. The other thing that deliverance ministries really don't deal with is this. We read through, say, the epistles of Paul, and it talks about living the Christian life and dealing with areas of sin in our life. Never once do we see mentioned in any of the epistles of Paul, uh, James, uh, John, uh, Peter, Jude, we never see once, uh, well, if you are struggling with falling into darkness or you know the deeds of the flesh are manifesting in your life, well, then uh, go to this meeting and have them lay hands on you or anoint you with oil and mm. cast the demon of cussing out of you, and then you will be free. Uh, no, you know, it's never said we are to die to the old man and live to God. We are to put on the new man, which is being renewed in the likeness of the one who has given us life in Jesus. So never do we see these instructions given. Now, when people try to sell these deliverance ministries to us, inevitably their argument will be, oh, but I've experienced it. You know, oh, you know, you don't know. I was at this meeting and, you know, this person started uh, foaming at the mouth and, and so on. And they were a believer in Jesus and, and so on. Uh, well, okay, we've got another problem here because what we've done at that point is we've elevated experience over the clear teaching of God's word. We're mm -hmm. judging, in a sense, or interpreting God's word and spiritual practice. Mm-hmm by experience rather than the teaching of God's Word. Mm, nothing and, wrong with experience, but it should always be verified and tested with what we already know and have reason to trust. Right, and that is the Word of God. So uh, when I hear about people talking about, you know, you know this, we've got to bind the strong man and, and uh, we've got to uh, cast these demons out of people or, or you know, the, the demon of lust is going to, you know, what it reminds me of was, you know, and Dave, you may be old enough to remember this, probably not, but uh, back in the groovy 70s, there was a comedian named Flip Wilson uh, who had a very popular show, a variety show, it was number one rated, and he used to do these different characters, and one of the characters he did was this uh, woman, Geraldine, and Geraldine's tagline, it was a big uh, kind of ha-ha tagline, see it on bumper stickers, was, the devil made me do it. Well, it, it got a lot of laughs because, you know, we all knew that Geraldine did it, not the devil. But, uh, but there's the, 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 the deliverance ministry movement that we see, and a lot of these things you see on Christian television, a lot of these books you read, are not based upon Scripture first. They're based upon experiences. Yeah. One example I can give you is uh, one of my professors at uh, Talbot started getting into all of this. And, uh, you know, he... he you know, in one of my classes, he started talking about these encounters he was having with the demonic. And, you know, and then he started mentioning that some of these people were born-again Christians. They needed to have these these demons that had latched onto them uh, set free. And, you know, he would say things like, well, you know, uh, one of the things you really need to understand is that uh, uh, you have to know the name of the demon in order to have authority over it. Mm. So I always ask the demon what his name is, and they're always really resistant, but you've got to ask the name, and he said, Jesus asked the name of the demon, Legion, and, and so on. Well, Which we wasn't only, a name, that was a number. We, we only <laughs> see that in one incidence. We never see that in any other incidence that involves a demonic, first of all. But the, the thing that hit me in that is, okay, say, uh, say I'm a demon, right? 
You're and, the, I'm, an adversary. And, I'm, and I'm living in the, uh, the, uh, the unseen spiritual realm. And I've got this guy who's an influential professor at a major seminary, and he's starting to dabble in all this stuff. I could just see him looking over at one of his fellow demons and going, what do you bet I can get this guy to believe that the only way he can have authority over us is by asking us their names? Mm-hmm. Oh, come on. He's smarter than that. Uh, you know, I love you, Jack. Okay, uh, demon, you can. Oh, well, whatever you do, don't ask my name because once you do that, you know. Well, you know, you can see that as soon as we get in the realm of the experiential or even start to base our doctrine of deliverance upon these encounters that we have, mm. you know, there's no doubt about the fact that Satan and his demons are a lot smarter than I am. Yeah. You know, they, they are master manipulators. They can yeah. tie you in knots in New York Minute. That's why whatever we we're, we're embarking in spiritual warfare, coming against the powers of darkness, and it does happen. Uh, it's got to be strictly scriptural, not based upon experience, not based upon, say, a really tortured uh, definition of a particular word. Like, well, no, it's not possessed, it's demonized. You can be lightly possessed. That's what they say. Well, lightly possessed, isn't that like being lightly pregnant? You know, either you are or you aren't. Yeah. So, you know, we really have to test these things. And uh, a lot of people end up uh, you know, first of all, not taking, like you mentioned, Sean, responsibility over, you know, areas in our lives uh, that would contribute to habitual sins uh, or, or even doing practical things. Like you mentioned, you know, putting, uh, you know, phone uh, and uh, computer uh, filtering programs and, and so on. Because uh, I'm the issue. Yeah. And even if I'm not struggling at any 24-7 particular moment, I plan ahead and count on I'm still a fallen sinner and I would rather set myself up for less sin and use that time while I can to pursue God. But again, that's a very practical way of approaching this. If on the other side of the coin, I go, well, you know, I guess I just have the demon of lust. So I'm going to wait for the next deliverance ministry and have that demon cast out of me because, you know, it's not my fault. Yeah. You know, it, it, it removes us from a really key passage that can set us free in our walk with God. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does confess mean? It means to say the same thing about him that God does. Mm -hmm. Not that the devil made me do it. Not that, you know, and and don't get me wrong, it's not that uh, the wicked one can't influence us through false doctrine. He certainly can. doctrine. But that's what he trades in. You know, he can't make you or me do anything. He can't indwell us as believers. We're already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. So, bottom line to the question our deliverance ministries, uh, some legitimate and some fake? Well, here's the thing any ministry is only legitimate in their willingness to be accountable and under the authority of God's word. If a deliverance ministry and their primary claims about the supernatural were to do that, they would cease to exist. So we will say definitively, no, they're not legitimate ministries. Yeah. However, that doesn't mean that the people participating in them are no longer saved. We're just saying they're based on false doctrine and need to repent. Yeah, and, and, and you, gotta, you really have to be careful uh, in these sets of, of circumstances because very sincere people mm-hmm. can be very easily manipulated along these lines. We're not saying that people who, are, who get involved with these things aren't believers. But uh, when you spend more of your prayer time talking to Satan than you do to God. Mm. 
any of your something time. <laughs> something is really really wrong yeah. right you know even jesus interactions with satan were very terse and to the point and in the fact point was. uh in fact michael the archangel we were told in the book of jude when he was coming face to face with satan merely said the lord rebuke you when then jesus he, himself interacted with the enemy in the book of zechariah what did he say Father rebuke you. Yeah. This one plucked from the brand of the fire. Yeah. So, you know, does far more good for us to be speaking to God uh, about these issues than to, first of all, blame our failures on the devil. That's a step away from accountability and a step away from real confession. And then secondly, you know, Satan loves it if we're casting aspersions at him and insulting him and telling us how much we can't stand him and, and yeah. so on. Because as soon as long as we're doing that, we're not talking to God. And that's where our power is. Yeah, yeah. So bottom line, deliverance is not scriptural. That's basically what I hear you saying, right? That the, the ministry of well, deliverance is demons not casting or, demons yeah. or sanctification by casting out demons from believers that is not scriptural. Not a scriptural thing. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Mike, great question. Thank you for it. Hope that helps helps you out. Great answer. Thank you. Thank you, brothers. Uh, I have a question um, from the name they've given is Terrible Speller. <laughs> uh, but Do they question, live up to it? Yeah. Well, I'll see as I read it. I don't have my reading glasses on, so I probably won't be able to tell. But uh, the question is, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace, um, spending good so far, how did Nebuchadnezzar know the fourth figure looked like the Son of God? How did he know what Jesus looks like? Yeah, um, he was just identifying him in broad strokes. Uh, mm-hmm. Daniel 1 through 4 are actually uh, 2 through 4 are written in Aramaic and the only uh, section of the Bible that's done so because that was the native language of Babylon. But when uh, these annals and records, Daniel 4 in particular, written by Nebuchadnezzar himself, Chapter 3 also falls into that section and category. Daniel was writing these records for those living in Babylon and that spoke those languages. But what's important to note about his identifying in the, you can go to BibleHub.com and look at the transcripts that we have of the actual Aramaic, and he just says, like one of the gods or one of the sons of gods. He looks like a divine being. He's not human. He looks human, but there's clearly, as VeggieTales summarized for it quite eloquently, real shiny yeah. was the point that was being made. Yeah. That, that's all that you need to read into the point. It's not that uh, he was given a personal revelation that this is the Messiah appearing. He just knew there was a human and that this was something bigger. And if I'm looking in a blast furnace, and first of all, I'm seeing the three guys I threw in there uh, alive and kicking and not even singed, uh, after the uh, MMA-style uh, goon squad guys who tossed them in were incinerated just by opening up the door. Yeah. I'd be very impressed with that. But if there's a fourth person who is displaying heavenly glory, I might say something along that line, mm. even though I might not be using the technical term uh, the Son of God as Jesus would define it in the Gospels. Yeah. And we'd also so. identify Nebuchadnezzar's relationship with God proper was solidified at the end of chapter four, not three. Yeah. He was right. in process. Yeah. yeah. But still thoroughly uh, immersed in pagan thought. Gotcha. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for that question. Question from Annie, who's with us uh, with us live. Great question, Annie. What is the definition and implication of Calvinism? Implications. <laughs> well, the implications are far-reaching. Uh, Reformed theology, uh, Annie, I guess if you're going to sum it up, is uh, in the, the proponents of Reformed theology 
they, they base it upon uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion that was written by the reformer John Calvin, Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, they would sum it up in this acronym TULIP. Uh, the T stands for total depravity. That, what that teaches is that man is absolutely incapable of saving himself. The U stands for unconditional election. In other words, before we were twinkling in our mama's eye, God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be predestined to adoption as sons. Uh, the L stands for limited atonement. Uh, what that means is that Jesus didn't die for everyone, but only for the elect, the, the, the people that God foreknew before the foundation of the world. These were the ones that he died for. Uh, the I stands for irresistible grace. That is, if you are part of the elect, God will draw you to himself. Uh, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't thwart the, the will of God. And P stands for perseverance of the saints. If you are part of the elect, you will persevere in your faith to the very end. Uh, so what are the implications? Well, maybe we could start with an evaluation, and I'll throw the implications to you, Sean. Yeah. Uh, the evaluation is this, total depravity, yeah, unconditional election, limited atonement. In a lot of these things, uh, we would have to define our terms very carefully before we say we agree or disagree with them uh, and to, to be very fair about it all. And there's some very, very good uh, Bible teachers that ascribe to Reformed theology. Uh, so, uh, you know, having said that, uh, the idea of total depravity, if it means that we are as bad off as we can possibly be as far as separated from God, we would agree with that. You know, read Romans chapter 3. It just gives the... the uh, uh, Ephesians uh, the, 2, the, 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 the MRI of, of how bad off we are spiritually. If by that you mean that we are so bad off that we, say, for instance, could not make any kind of a, a choice to say yes to God, unless God miraculously intervened and made that happen. That's saying something that the Bible really doesn't say, because we do see in the Bible uh, challenges that are, are made to God's people. See, I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Choose life that you might live. So, uh, you know, total depravity, meaning that, uh, you know, you cannot, uh, you absolutely cannot do anything to cooperate yourself, even saying yes to it, we wouldn't believe that uh, because the scripture doesn't back that. Mm. Unconditional uh, election, that God chose us uh, not based on anything we could do or, or will do. We would agree with that uh, completely. Uh, you know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, God, uh, God's word says. Deuteronomy 7, Israel was chosen because God loved them, yeah. not because they deserved it. Now, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, I chose you. Yeah, the, the, the L... In limited atonement is where we really begin to run into problems because it says uh, that God's atonement is limited. And really, this is kind of a philosophical construct because uh, what a, uh, a Reformed theologian would say is that God can always accomplish his will. Nothing can thwart his will. And if someone turns their back on God's will, then God's will is thwarted. Hmm. So... In that sense, Jesus didn't really die for the sins of the world. He only died for the sins of the elect, because if he died for the sins of the world and the world turned that down, then 
somehow God's will has been blocked here. Right. Well, okay, I understand that philosophically, but I don't agree with that scripturally. Uh, in First John chapter two and verse one, uh, the Apostle John said, "My little, my uh, little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins," We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is the atoning sacrifice, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. It doesn't say the elect, it doesn't say the chosen, the, the, the whole world. So, you know, dovetailing off of that irresistible grace. Well, we do see repeatedly, uh, for instance, Stephen saying to the, uh, the Jewish ruling Sanhedrin, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Mm. So there's some resisting going on there. Doesn't, it's been hard for you to kick against the goats. Yeah, How would mm-hmm. you do that? Yeah. Right. yeah, and perseverance of the saints. This is really the, the trickiest one uh, because uh, those who are involved with Reformed theology say, oh, we believe in eternal security. Well, okay, but, you know, again, I've been in that neck of the church woods, and uh, what they'll say is, well, you're eternally secure, but if, say, you were walking with the Lord, but then you turn your back on him, mm-hmm. all that will show is that you really weren't part of the elect to begin with. So where's the security in that? Yeah. You know, so um, the, the implications involved with all of this, I think, are pretty huge. Uh, you know, we need to have a scriptural view. We shouldn't become over-enamored of a theological construct. Right. Bottom line. Right now, time for today. Time flies when you're having fun. We'll see you back. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll be back here on Monday, same time, same place. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Scott. God God bless bless you guys. guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.